is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Monday, February 20th, 2023. And today will be better than yesterday. It's President's Day. I'm Buster Only. I'm at Mets camp in Port St. Lucie. You're going to probably hear uh, machines in the background during the course of this podcast. Sarah Abbott uh, is working from the hangar up in Bristol. Taylor Schwink is working from the home, the pulpit. Although we did get one bleacher tweet. I think we're going to have to address this question of whether or not Taylor, we can refer to you as the Rev. I'm going to get your opinion on that. But before we start, it's President's Day. Who's your favorite president? Sarah, you go first. I'm going to go classic, good old honest Abe, Abe Lincoln. It's hard to find something wrong with Abraham Lincoln. Okay. And and I agree with you. I, I think I told you the guys this. Maybe I haven't. My stepdad's name is Ed Lincoln, and he is a distant relative of Abraham Lincoln. So when he got married to my mom when I was seven, I became a big Lincoln buff, uh, read a million books on him, love history. It's part of the reason why I was a history major in college. Taylor, what you got? Oh, I'm going Ike Eisenhower, man. Uh, the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, the father of the modern highway system in America. He is definitely my favorite. Who's your second favorite, President Buster? Because I did know that you are a big Abraham Lincoln guy. Uh, I kind of, I, you know, there's something being a Vermonter to Calvin Coolidge, mm, Silent Cal. Yeah. You know, he was born there. Do you know Vermont has two presidents born in that state? Do you know the other one? Ooh. Bonus points for either one of you if you get it. No, I knew Calvin Coolidge was a Vermont guy, but I do not know who the second mm. one is. Okay, Sarah? No idea. Chester A. Arthur. Mm. Okay. Oh, that was famous. my first guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. On the podcast today, excited about this. Joe Martinez, a vice president with Major League Baseball, is going to answer listener questions about the new rules. It was Joe who last week was explaining these uh, these new rules to media members and sessions in Arizona and Florida. And he's joining the podcast uh, in just a bit. We're also going to hear from Tim Kirkchin. A great conversation, guys. I thought with Corbin Carroll, when we interviewed him uh, before, a fascinating guy. Like, I walked away sending notes to people I work for saying, this, this is something we're going to ta- be talking about for a while. Yeah, he was uh, probably the most interesting player that we've had on the podcast, and that's not to disparage other players that have been on. Um, but he, you'll you'll hear it. He's, I was considering like kind of tightening things up a little bit, but I think hearing the whole thing without any real cuts is is important, and listeners will understand what we're talking about when they hear it. Sarah, you had the same reaction. Yeah, I thought he was very thoughtful. And sometimes when you're interviewing people, they like to fill space right away and just get out whatever they're thinking. But he really took time and really thought things through, and it was cool. Yeah, and he's going to be around a long time. Number one prospect in baseball as we start in 2023. Some news and notes. The Padres Manny Machado told reporters the other day he plans to opt out of his contract after the 2023 season, this is not a surprise. Here's Manny Machado talking about that decision. I mean, so far this year, I'm a project, but who knows after next year? I know, uh, you know, obviously the team knows where, where I stand in my situation and, you know, with the opt-out coming. And, you know, I think I've expressed that I will be opting out after this year, um, you know, but I think my focus is not about 2024. I think my focus is about 2023, what I can do to this ball club, what I've done for this organization. and. You know what we're going to continue to do here. I think we got something special here growing, and um, you know I don't think uh, anything's going to change. Shohei Otani spoke to the reporters uh, about his impending free agency uh, at the end of this season. Well, he didn't really talk about it. He said to them, "This is my last year. I'm aware of this. 
as of now, I'm an angel, and that's all I'm focused on. In other words, he doesn't want to really talk about it. Uh, as we've said on the podcast many times, the full expectation of folks with other teams is he's going to land with another club in free agency next fall. I spoke with Carlos Correa in Twins Camp over the weekend after his crazy year off season, where he signed with the Giants or had an agreement with the Giants, $350 million, plunked a physical, has an agreement with the Mets, $315 million, failed another physical. Here's some, uh, here's some of what he had to say. Carlos, when you came in last year, it felt like a one-year situation for you. You come back to the Twins this spring. What feels different? It uh, feels different because, uh, you know, spending a full year with this organization and, uh, you know, loving everything about it and lo- loving where we're headed. Now knowing that I'm going to be part of this family for a long time, so, you know, the seeds that I'm planting are going to be here forever and hopefully help us build a great team for a long time. That's the goal. It's not only about winning one year here, one year there. It's about being consistently good for a long time. I think we have the right pieces for that. We have a lot of young guys that, you know, you know we have had this conversation before. If, they, if it pans out and they become the players they're supposed to be, we're going to be great for a long time. And that's just not to put pressure on those guys, but um, it's the truth. we got a lot of young talent in this organization that, that, will, that will lead the way. So uh, I'm excited about that. Outfielder Teoscar Hernandez lost his arbitration case with the Seattle Mariners. Uh, right now, the teams have a 13-6 to lead over the players in these arbitration decisions. I mentioned we'll be talking with Joe Martinez today. It's going to be incredibly fun. I saw the list of questions, Taylor. Pretty cool. Oh yeah, I was I was spending a while digging them out last night. I I also you know we we made clear to each other that we will not include we will be respectful and uh, you know present serious questions to him. But some of the replies that you got were were making me chuckle. How did you say they rhetorical questions? Would you agree with that description? <laughs> yes, I got to know though. Do you think the pitch clock will be affected by daylight savings time? Is that? <laughs> Man. <laughs> All right. What else you got? Buster, Brian Windhorse and the Hoop Collective, three days a week. Uh, you can watch them on YouTube. You can listen to them where you, you're listening to this podcast right now. I'm sure those guys have a ton of great stories from All-Star Weekend out in Sa- or, uh, St. Louis, Salt Lake City. Check those guys out, the Hoop Collective, wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes. The clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So Martinez is a former pitcher, and he is the vice president of on-field strategy for Major League Baseball. He also, one of your colleagues said, I need to introduce you as the king of the great hair. Uh, you know, so uh, you may get that, uh, from time to time, but thanks for doing this, Joe. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So you did two sessions with reporters last week, uh, in which you were explaining some of these new rules and you also have done sessions with other people. Just explain the process that you've been through this spring. Yeah. So I, I may be working backwards, I guess. Uh, you know, last week we, we wanted to make sure that, you know, folks are informed. So, um, you know, we, we set up some sessions with reporters, both in Arizona and Florida, um, you know, go through a quick presentation. Uh, Chris Marinak, who's our chief strategy and operations officer, also spoke kind of to just like general state of the game, um, which I thought was really enlightening. And then we went over questions and did kind of an on-field walkthrough to make sure everyone understands, you know, little details and specifics about the rules. Um, it seems to be pretty well received. So uh, hopefully it was helpful. And beyond media members also players yes you've talked to some some oh, yeah. players or teams or, or officials yeah so I, I mean we've been working mostly through um like the field staff right the managers and, and their staffs um from the clubs we presented to to all 30 during the winter meetings in san diego a few months ago and then we've had um i don't know with every club but almost maybe you know one-on-one -on -one sessions as well to make sure you know get another you know deep dive make sure they understand all, all the all the ins and outs and have opportunities to ask questions, um, you know, and, and bounce stuff off us to make sure that they are, you know, applying the rules correctly to, to what they're asking the players to do on the field. We've had some sessions with players as well. Um, those have gone well. Um, you know, everyone is, I think, ready to go and, and just, uh, you know, a little bit um, anxious to, to get started in games. Like, I mean, like you are at this time of year, no matter what. So it, I, one thing I heard in your voice is you explain the rules. First off, you have spent a ton of time on these. It's pretty clear because there was no hesitation when questions were posed to you. And you put a lot of thought into it. Just sort of explain your effort uh, in, in preparing for this, this spring training. Yeah, I mean, obviously not just me, right? There's there's a large team and, and you know, everyone is well aware that, you know, Theo Epstein and and Morgan Sword, who runs our baseball operations team at, at the uh, commissioner's office, were involved. Um, but also folks like like Reed McPhail, if if people don't know his name, but a, a brilliant guy who works in the office with us and, and actually my boss. So um, I don't just say that because he's my boss. But, you know, it, it's it's and it's even more than that. But there's been a long process of, you know, I think first getting, getting the rule put together and then testing in, in nearly 8,000 minor league games and like continuing to iterate and, and getting input from different groups, right? Players, coaches, front office personnel, um, umpires have been extremely helpful. And then as we come um, across something that maybe we hadn't planned for or just wasn't, you know, um, we didn't foresee happening, um, you know, we tried to make little tweaks and adjustments uh, to cover those areas. So, um, I'm sure there's still going to be things that we need to do and small adjustments we'll need to make 
Um, but we'll just continue along in that process. And, and hopefully we've covered, you know, the, the vast majority. All right. I promised listener questions for you. So we'll start with this. And it was interesting because some of these questions that we got were uh, questions like the, the, the media uh, was asking you in the session that we did in Dunedin last week. Uh, Jake Bidna asks, what's to stop other teams from getting a huge lead to second once the two pickoff attempts have been used? So you can still pick a third time. Um, so a runner's still going to be at risk getting a huge lead. If a pitcher picks a third time and gets an out, there's no penalty. Um, so just walking off of first base is not going to be a good strategy. I do think it gives the runner a little bit more leverage because the pitcher has to be careful. If the runners return safely to the base on that third pickoff, a balk is called. But again, if you get a huge lead, you're going to pretty easily be put out, particularly with major league baseball players, right, who are so good at fundamentally and, and, and you know, will get outs in those situations. I think it was you who said in the session that we did that you guys expect a jump in stolen base attempts, but not like back to the 80s when Vince Coleman's, you know, stealing 106. It's more of early 2000s, yes? Yeah, that, that's, I mean, if you take the results from minor league testing and um, apply that to where we're at in the major leagues right now, that, that's where it gets us back to that, that kind of early 2000s level. I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with getting back to the Vince Coleman days. I mean, I, you know, kind of remember them a little bit when, you know, pretty young kid, but, um, you know, something that fans say they want, and I think everyone agrees it's just a good part of baseball, is that athleticism. And as much as we can kind of have that featured in our game, um, I think that's that's for the better. NL Braves asks, when does the pitch clock start? Uh, and he asks, when the pitcher receives the ball from the catcher, when the catcher has the ball in his hand to throw it, when the previous pitch is thrown, when the batter's announced, is it different after a foul ball or a pass ball? <laughs> so yes, is kind of the easy answer to, to, the, to the last part of that, but um, to, to try to go over the different scenarios quickly. Um, in a normal just pitch and catch situation, right? Pitcher throws a pitch, catcher catches it, and the umpire calls it. The clock's going to start when the pitcher gets the ball back. Um, in any sort of dead ball situation, the umpire calls time or there's a foul ball. It's The clock isn't going to start really until play's ready to resume, which means the pitcher needs to be on the mound with the ball. The catcher and the batter have to be in the home plate area. Um, the umpire has to be in position. And all the players and base runners have to be ready to go, right? So if a foul ball's hit down the line and a runner's going and a, the right fielder's chasing it, the clock won't start until those folks are back where they need to be. Um, and that's when the clock will start. And you mentioned uh, this was one of the things that you mentioned in, in our session last week about uh, the pitcher, the clock after a foul ball, the pitcher receiving the ball but getting back on the dirt of the mound, correct? Right. So if the, even if the pitcher has a ball and is off the dirt of the mound, the clock won't start at that point. You know, we are obviously aware of situations where pitchers may try to milk that a little bit, right, and want umpires to, to do what they always do, right, manage the game. Hey, get on the mound, let's go. Um, you know, we want play ready to resume. So there are ways to get a little bit of a breath here and there, right? We don't obviously want to speed the game up to the point where folks always feel rushed or anxious. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really about getting back to, to baseball. And, and a, a lot of times it, you know, when done well, it looks like that baseball, the eighties and nineties, I think they said I grew up loving and, and a lot of our fans did as well. And you mentioned that uh, in the minor leagues, what you saw was catchers will tr sometimes try to slow the game down and you put in a rule for them. Yep. Um, catchers, you know, in the minor leagues, are, they're, they're smart and uh, they're holding on to the ball a couple seconds longer, giving the pitcher t time to, to you know, get set or, um, you know, take more time between pitches than, than maybe we wanted. I think in, in isolated situations, that's okay, right? If a guy just gave up a double or threw a couple bad pitches, 
hold on the ball a second. Hey, calm down. You know, you'll see pitchers, catchers a lot of times, right? They use their hands. Hey, calm down, relax, stay within yourself. Um, but if they, if they do it kind of as a practice, right? Every pitch they're holding onto the ball, holding onto the ball, holding onto the ball. Um, the umpires will, will give will warn them and, and make sure that they speed that back up. And if they don't, they can, they can be penalized for it. So, you know, we want to try to account for those, you know, attempts at circumventing the rule and really slowing the game down. Eric Dadman asks, will pitchcom issues count as a quote-unquote disengagement? I feel like we saw pitchcom problems once every other game or so, and it was never a big deal, but I could see it causing a lot of frustration if it takes away an engagement at a key time. Yeah, good question. I, it will not. So that that's an area that will be carved out. So similar to any other kind of equipment issue, um, if there's a pitchcom issue, the pitcher can step off. It doesn't count as a disengagement. It doesn't count as a mound visit. Um, address that issue, hopefully get it reconciled very quickly and and get back to baseball. You know, we are confident with, uh, you know, a year runway, right? All the clubs, you know, got really good using these devices last year. Um, I think the Pitchcom team, who's been great to work with, has even made some improvements, making them more user-friendly. Um, you know, we'll limit those those instances, but they will occur. And and we want to make sure that that teams can still use those devices. So, you know, wanted to create a little bit of a um, uh, some relief for those situations. Can you explain what you guys are doing with pitchers and pitchcom this spring? Sure. Um, the, you know, this is really driven from the players and, and the teams themselves. Um, last year, you know, we got some questions about, hey, can a, can a pitcher call his own pitches? And I think we were reluctant to go there, particularly early on, and, and without being able to, to see what it looked like in, in a lower stress environment. So this spring, um, pitchers are going to be able to call their own pitches using a pitchcom transmitter. Um you know, we do think it, it's going to be helpful. It's a particularly guys who like to shake a lot, um, you know, throw a bunch of different pitches. Think like Zach Grinke is a good example, right? Um, you know, so instead of having to keep shaking and the clock's running down, he can just send the pitch he wants to the catcher. Um, you know, there's another there's another use case for this, but maybe maybe even more common, right? Teams still have the catchers, you know, call pitches, but instead of shaking, pitchers can just send back, you know, the pitch they would rather throw. So it may cut down a little bit on shake and suggest another pitch and shake again, um, you know, all I think helping the teams and the pitchers comply with, with the new regulations that are going to be in place. And you said uh, last week that the trajectory of this testing with pitchers uh, could follow what happened last year. If you can explain that. Yeah. So, so last year with, with the device or with that, that's pitch system in general. And this year with the pitchers using the transmitter is really being done on a trial basis in spring training. We're going to look for feedback from the clubs and this is how, how it worked last year. Um, and you know, if it's apparent that there's a strong pull from that side, you know, they want to be able to do this. They really think it's valuable and useful. Um, you know, it will, we'll, we'll work with them and see if that's something that we want to do the re- during the regular season. However, just kind of in a trial trial phase right now, and we'll see how it goes. And Joe, you pitched four seasons in the big leagues. You can explain better than I can. The different pitchers have different preferences when it comes to pitch calling. When I covered Andy Pettit, he wanted to be the plow horse who was just told which direction to go. He wanted right. the catcher to dri- drive the game. But on the other hand, you walks a, watch a guy like Max Scherzer. He clearly dictates what they're going to do with the pitches. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. It, and and it, sometimes it depends on the pitcher-catcher relationship also, right? I probably fell into more the Max Scherzer camp where I, I knew what I wanted to throw you know, before I got the ball back a lot of times. Um, I also didn't throw hard enough just to put down old number one and blow by somebody. So I was trying to trick guys up there sometimes. But, um, you know, you may have a catcher. I had Benji Molina my first, you know, time up with the Giants and, you know, whatever Benji put down, you were pretty much thrown because he, a lot of times he had a better idea than you did of what should come next. 
Um, but you know, it's uh, it's interesting uh, how it's going to work. Um, I still think a lot of pitchers are going to want at least the suggestion from the catcher. But in those instances where they feel really convicted about throwing a certain pitch, um, they'll be able to send that back. And, and and there's a lot of like communication beforehand, right? You talk to your catcher, hey, if you really want to pitch and I shake, put it down again. Or um, in this situation, why'd you go to that? Right? They're always working together anyway. So I think it just it even further encourages you know the battery kind of to stay on the same page and work together. And that's kind of a fun part of baseball and one I really enjoyed as a pitcher. Yeah, I always like watching the guys, and Max does this from time to time. When the batter's like looking down at his feet or something, you'll see Max like give a signal to the catcher with a with the motion of his glove what he wants to throw next. And now he can just do that potentially with a pitchcom device if it gets approved for the year. Uh, Raymond asks, will the severe limits on defensive shifts res- uh, result in a renewed emphasis on base running skills by hitters who get on base? What do you think? I'm not sure how much the shift restrictions are going to impact base running. Um, I think some some things with the larger bases as well as the pitch come, I'm sorry, the pitch timer rule, right, which includes this disengagement limit, um, definitely put more of an emphasis on good base running, um, you know, maybe make athleticism a little bit more valuable. But I think maybe combined with the shift restrictions where um, getting on first base might be more valuable, right? Um, I think we've seen, we've gone through this period where, um, and rightfully so, these, you know, brilliant people in front offices have um, prioritized maybe slugging over just on base percentage or, or, or you know, batting average in general. Um, but, you know, if it's easier to get to second, it's probably better. To, it's probably more valuable to get to first. Right. And if you have guys who, who can really run and are good base runners and steal bases, you know, maybe it becomes a little more valuable to get on first. Um, we're hoping that all of these things together, um, you know, really allow our athletic our athletic players to, to showcase that, that athleticism um, and we, we kind of create an environment that that's encouraging for that so um, not maybe not just the shift restrictions but all of them combined uh, maybe you know contribute to that Brad Stevens asks if the teams are just going to shift over an outfielder to play shallow right how does the infield shift rule impact anything yeah uh, it's a good question too I mean all of these are actually really good um I, you know I think we're, we're, our kind of perspective on the shift is um, the shift as, it, as it's been used up until this time was really based on um, putting guys in, in the best possible positions, um, you know, to, to, to be where hitters were more likely to hit the ball. Um, even some cases, you know, hit the ball hard, right? In, in the case of that short right fielder with, with Joey Gallo type hitters up. Um, however, what you were sacrificing or what you were risking in those situations was usually just a single, right? You left maybe the left side of the infield open, but the best a batter is going to be able to do, you know, beyond what he can normally do, is maybe just shoot a shoot a base hit through there or bunt and get on first base. Um, you know, and with bigger guys like Joey Gallo, right? And although he's a really good athlete, getting on first base not as dangerous as you know some other folks like you know Whitmerfield or something like that. Um, if you're now thinking of shifting a left fielder over to play short right field now you're essentially playing with two outfielders, right? And a miss hit ball, instead of becoming a base hit, becomes a double or a triple in some cases. Um, so, you know, we think that the risk profile uh, of that strategy is is a lot different than it was previously. You know, we'll see what teams are doing. If we want to make changes, uh, you know, at uh, another time, maybe a future season, you know, be if that gains popularity, we, we can still do that. Um, but, you know, we are hopeful that that's not going to be the case. We'll see. Tony D three nine four two asks, please ask in detail when the three disengagement rule resets. Is it by at bat? If there's a wild pitch and a runner advances, does it reset? 
If the pitcher gets injured, a new pitcher comes in, does it reset, et cetera? If a runner advances during a plate appearance, that disengagement limit resets, right? So the way that I like to explain is that pitchers always have two freebies, um, you know, when a, when a plate appearance starts and if they use them both and a, and a runner advances for any reason, a balk, a stolen base, a wild pitch, whatever, um, that, the, that disengagement limit resets. So now the pitcher has two more freebies, a new pitcher coming in a game and, and obviously you, you hope no one gets injured and has to be replaced that way. But say a, a pitcher uses his two pickoffs, they decide to make a pitching change and a new pitcher comes in that disengagement limit does not reset. So that new pitcher who's coming into the game assumes that that number of disengagements. Andy, and I should have probably coupled this with the previous question about shifts. Are there any limits to what teams can do when shifting outfielders? For example, can you take your left fielder, put him in short right field with the second baseman used to play on a shift versus a lefty? Is there any, any restrictions on what you can do with your outfielders? No, you can, you can kind of move the outfielders however you want. Um, And that includes that situation, bringing a left fielder into short right field or bringing one of your outfielders in as a fifth infielder and positioning him wherever you want. So there, there's no restrictions on where the outfielders can go. Last one for you. Mark Stevens asks uh, in series here, what happens when a batter needs to replace a broken bat? What happens when a batter fouls the ball off his legs and needs a moment when a catcher takes a foul ball in a bad spot and also needs a minute? So the umpires, you know, just like with any other part of baseball, you know, have discretion on how to apply the rules. Um, so if there's situations where there's a possible injury, a player needs more time to get another bat, um, which would be right an equipment issue. The umpires can stop the clock, allow that player either time to get a new bat or recover or get back in the batter's box. Um, and then the clock will restart. So, um, you know, again, we don't want to be unreasonable with how we're asking the players to move, move around and, 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 you know, play baseball. If there are some special circumstances that arise, which they will, we trust the umpires to manage those situations. And, you know, we have all the confidence in the world in them. I told you before we got started, I kept the rhetorical questions out. I wanted to give you one, which came from someone who you know, and that would be C.J. Wilson, former pitcher, who asked, why do you think that changing the rules of the game to make it like other sports will make baseball better better than it has been? I don't think that that it's to make it like other sports. And obviously, you know, C.J. Wilson is going to have a very well-informed opinion, a great, great player um, in his own right and had a long career. Um you know, I think it highlights maybe something about baseball, which is great, um, is that we all kind of have our own opinions of the game, right? And even as former players and now fans, um, you know, we have this, we ask the same questions. You know, the way that the way that I see it is is really trying to take, you know, our game back to what it looked like a number of years ago. Um, so even though we're we're putting you know new regulations in place. Um, you know, it does things that that kind of harken back to 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 a bygone era, I guess, at this point. But you know, the shift restrictions. One way to look at it is is just kind of you know reintroducing a more traditional look and feel to the game, right? With players playing in positions you were used to seeing them in. Um, you know, the pitch timer, while it while it does um, you know provide some new elements, um, it also gets guys just playing baseball and and cuts out on a lot of that dead time, which has become more and more popular, right? So. You know, my hope, and I think all of our hope, is that when fans watch the games, and and I encourage fans to get out there to the ballpark, especially where I think it's most noticeable, but um, that it just kind of like you know looks like baseball, right? I think after a couple innings, when you stop paying attention to the clock or you stop remarking on oh, there's no nobody in a shifted position, 
it just looks like baseball and guys are getting on the mound and throwing the ball and right back in the batter's box and getting ready to, to hit. And, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's pretty great. So I hope CJ, um, you know, feels the same way once he's, once he's able to watch a couple of these games, he may not. And I respect that a hundred percent. Um, but obviously that that's one of the great things about this game. You're always going to get so many varying different perspectives and from people who, who love the game on both sides. Joe, thanks for doing this. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thank you very much. Seam heads rejoice. This is Timmy time. Baseball is the greatest game with Tim Kirchner. It never disappoints you on baseball tonight. Tim Kirchner, it covers baseball for ESPN. He's in Clearwater this morning. As I mentioned before, I'm in Port St. Lucie seeing the match. You're seeing the Phillies team, Tim, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I wanted to ask you about this. We saw this the other day. Right. One, two, three. Say, Emily's pregnant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is she really? Yeah, Tim, so I like throwing curveballs at you, but I got to say, your son Jeff threw a curveball at you that uh, is better than anything. It had like a 4,000 RPM spin rate on it. If you tell that story. Yeah, that was a Burt Bly 11 curveball buster. I did not see that coming. Not at the time that it did. You don't understand this. Our son, Jeff and his wife, Emily are, are pregnant. They're, they're due at the beginning of August. This will be grandchild number three. I already have one. Carson is two years old. Kelly Kirchin is due on opening day, great planning, and Jeffrey is due, and Emily is due on August the 4th. So this is how they chose to surprise my wife and I at an Italian restaurant. Did not see it coming. I thought there was something going on. I just didn't think it would be <laughs> announced like that. And my son, great on Twitter, unlike his poor dad, who's terrible on Twitter. My son released that. Jeffrey released it without me even knowing. And I must say, all kidding aside, it's got a tremendous response. I was very touched with uh, people's wishing us all luck. Yeah. If you haven't seen the video, what happened was is that Jeff uh, held up a glass, uh, essentially the way you do it, uh, where you're like taking a picture and you say cheese and he says, Emily's pregnant. And your the look on your face, Tim, was just awesome. It was just priceless. Like, are you serious? <laughs> well, that was the point. I did not see that coming, at least not at that time. But this is typical of my son, Jeff. He's very creative. He's very mischievous. He's He's gotten me a few times before, and he got me again. All right. So you're down in Florida. What have you seen so far? Who have you talked to? What's jumped out at you? Well, again, Buster, I've fallen into the same trap. I've fallen in for 42 straight years. I go to a camp. I feel the optimism, and I fall in. So after seeing the Yankees yesterday, I left thinking they're going to win like 130 games, okay, which obviously they're not. But their bullpen is good. Their rotation is really good. And once they figure out who the shortstop's going to be, which is going to be a fascinating spring training with the shortstop, I went through all the options, Volpe and Peraza and uh, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. It's really interesting. And I saw Josh Donaldson yesterday. Looks like he's got a new body, 36 years old, angry about the way things went last year. Looks like he's ready to go again. I, I really liked what I saw from the Yankees yesterday. I saw the Mets earlier this spring, where you are right now. 
I left thinking they have a chance to be really, really good also. And, of course, I saw the Astros, who are really, really good. So um, it's been mostly optimism from the places I've gone. Of course, I've only gone to really good teams so far. So who do you think is going to be the Yankee shortstop then? Because that that is the – that will dominate the conversation spring training. My instinct is is the way the teams think typically is, okay, let's go with the veteran to start the year because we can always change in midstream. On the other hand, if you go with uh, Anthony Volpe and he gets off to a bad start, it creates a lot of complication. Yes, I think, note my hesitation, I think you're right. I think they'll go with the veteran at shortstop to start the season. However, if Volpe tears it up in spring training, he's going to be their opening day shortstop. I believe that. But he has to tear it up because he's played, what, 22 games at AAA, and they're not going to leave that to the Yankee shortstop unless they're certain that he's ready. And Peraza's is right there, too. So they have three pretty good options. And as, as Aaron Boone told me yesterday, all of our shortstops are going to play other positions this spring. Um, so it's going to be a fascinating process, but I don't think they're going to be like overly cautious on this. They know we got to beat the Astros. We've got to be better than we were last year. And if Volpe, for instance, gives them what they didn't have last year, I think he'll make the team and be the starter, but he has to be great in spring training for that to happen. On Sunday, Tim, I was in Astros camp where you had been before me, uh, and you know, I had a, we had Dusty Baker on Sports Center, and I asked him a question about who he's heard from during the course of winter. Because of course, you know, I've had managers tell me through the years that that's the most fun in winning a World Series. You get to hear from friends, you get to hear from colleagues. Listen to Dusty's list of who he's heard from, and also listen to him describe the challenge of trying to repeat. Well, some of the first guys I heard from was like. Uh... Uh, you know, Sandy Koufax, you know, uh, Barack Obama, uh, Snoop Dogg, um, you know, Cito Gaston, you know, guys that um, uh, teammates uh, such as, you know, Steve, Steve Garvey, you know, different guys, uh, you know, that you hear from or guys that you appreciate hearing from that, you know, that that are following you. And, uh, you know, it makes you feel good that they're still paying attention to you. I mean, it's a long road. Uh, you got to stay healthy, which is always tough. And, and it's a short winter, you know, like I'm, I'm really amazed by guys like, uh, you know, LeBron James and these guys that 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 go to the playoffs every year and they play play a quarter of a season more than their than everybody else. And over a course of time, or you say over four years, they played a, a whole season more than anybody else. So uh, you just got to take care of yourself, stay healthy and uh, and keep a great frame of mind. That's the first time in history, Tim. I just want to note this that anybody has uttered. Sandy Koufax, Barack Obama, and Snoop Dogg all in the same sentence. That, that is the greatest juxtaposition ever, Barack Obama, Snoop Dogg. But it's so typical of Dusty Baker, who we know, Buster, knows everyone. I mean, he was good friends with Jimmy and Elrod Hendricks, you know, and everyone in between. And only Dusty can say that. He's the most interesting man in the world. He meets people so easily. He's got so many different interest. He's a renaissance man on so many levels. That was just priceless. I had a wonderful chat with Dusty the other day because, by the way, he missed the first two days of spring training, one for an NAACP convention and one for a cancer prevention. And and the owner told him to do both of those things. So he missed the first two days of spring training. Trust me, he missed nothing because their team is so good. But it just shows you 
how important Dusty is to the Astros, to the game, and to the world. He's representing so many people these days, especially as a World Series champion, as a manager. So I thought the Braves last year had a legit shot to go back-to-back, but as you know, you get injuries, You you know, another team gets hot, the, like the Phillies got hot, and all of a sudden the Braves got overwhelmed. I do feel like the Astros have a legit shot because, you know, Justin Verlander leaves, but they have Hunter Brown coming up, and they have two guys in the front of their rotation, Framber Valdez and Christian Javier, who are excellent. Their bullpen's excellent. They had Jose Abreu. They're going to score a ton of runs, Tim. They are, Buster. We talked about this last week. How can they not be predicted to win more games than anyone? Look, predictions don't mean anything, but they're the world champs, and you could make a case they've gotten better. Michael Brantley appears to be relatively healthy this spring. You put him in left field, you put Abreu, who is an RBI machine, an absolute perfect guy for Dusty Baker's lineup. And you're right, that young pitching is only going to get better, and that overwhelming bullpen that just dominated the postseason. The whole bullpen is back, and they're great. So I, I, I was so impressed with that team again when I left. But, again, I get, I get easily coerced here in spring training. So since you and I talked last, Corbin Burns went through his arbitration hearing. He lost to the Milwaukee Brewers, and Corbin Burns wasn't too happy about it. Here's what he said on camera to Alvin Adam McCalvey of MLB.com. Had the hearing flew in the night before. Um, had the hearing all day Tuesday. Um, spent Valentine's Day on a plane. Um, got home at you know 10, 11 o'clock, and and got to see my wife before she fell asleep. So that was kind of how the Valentine's Day went. So that was that was fun. But um, yeah, like I say, you, you kind of find out your true value. Um, you think you you work hard for seven years in the organization and five years with the with the big league team, and um, you get in there and basically they, they value you much different than what you thought you you contributed to the organization. Um, and it's just you know it's obviously it's tough to hear, it's tough to take, but you know they're trying to do what they can to win a hearing. Um, but I think there was obviously other ways that they they could have gone about it, um, and um, probably been a little more respectful with the, with the way they went about it. But um, you know at, at the end of the day, here we are. Um, you know, they, they obviously they won it, um, but it, it, when it came down to, to winning or losing the hearing, it was, it was more than that for me. Yeah, so subsequently, Matt Arnold, uh, general manager, head of baseball ops with the Brewers, met with Corbin Burns, and the word from the Brewers was, oh, they, they patched it up. Tim, they didn't patch it up. This stuff sticks with players. I, I think it does increase the likelihood at some point the Brewers are going to trade him maybe in July. Yeah, Buster, this has never made sense to me because, look, I understand the arbitration process is about money and it's a business thing, not a baseball thing, and it's not personal, but it gets personal in those meetings. I've talked to dozens of players over the years who hated every step of the arbitration process and the hearing just turned them in the wrong direction. And the brewers have to look at this like, we're the small market brewers and we have to keep our best players happy in any hope that we can keep them long-term. It just seems to me when there's that small of a distance between the player and the, and the team, you just don't want to go to a hearing. It is not worth what happens in that room. People's feelings get hurt. And even though you can say, Oh, we've made up that stuff lingers with baseball players. They're wildly competitive. And when someone says something bad about them, in the media, but especially when their team says something bad about them, they usually don't forget. So if, if I were in charge of things, unless it was ridiculous, I would do everything I could to make sure it doesn't get to a hearing. 
there's a bigger gap of money separating Manny Machado and the Padres. Uh, he can opt out of his contract at the end of this year and walk away from what the last five years, $140 million. Reportedly, the, the Padres are willing to tack on about $105 million over five years. Machado told reporters the other day uh, that uh, he, he intends to opt out. He gave a, a February 16th deadline. I tend to think of this situation as being fluid, Tim, uh, it, it, to the degree that if you told me that Machado and the Padres worked it out, it wouldn't be a, be a surprise. Because if I'm Dan Lozano, who represents Manny Machado, I'm looking at the Padres right now as being a team that, yeah, you can make a deal with that team. That club is out there valuing players in a way that a few teams are. What do you think? Well, first off, I'm not surprised that Manny Machado said what he said. But these people who think Manny Machado is now definitely gone from the Padres, I'm not buying that at all. I mean, we, we obviously have to see what happens this year. What if the Padres are great? What if they win the World Series for the first time? And he looks around at, you know, Bogarts and Soto and Tatis and himself and says, this is the most fun I've ever had playing baseball. We're going to be great for years to come. Why in the world would he want to leave that situation? So let's see what happens with the Padres this year. Now, let's say things all go sideways. It's not a good year there. And let's just say the Mets who are going to maybe need a third baseman. They have more money than anybody else. They have a manager, Buck Showalter, who has worked with Manny Machado before, and Manny loves Buck, as we all know. This is all obvious stuff. Yes, there's a chance Manny's going to leave, but let's see what the Padres do first this year, because I'm not buying that he's not coming back there next year. And let's face it, the Padres have a ton of money, and they recognize this guy's a great player. Why would they want to lose him at age 30, 31, when they could win a bunch of things with him for the next five or six years? Speaking of the Mets, uh, I'm in Mets camp today because Steve Cohen, their owner, is going to speak with the reporters in about an hour. We learned over the weekend from The Athletic that Major League Baseball has formed a special uh, economic reformation committee, which is comprised of the likes of Dick Montfort, who is the owner of the Rockies, who's complained out loud about the Padres and their spending. And, of course, we know how other teams are complaining about Steve Cohen. And when I saw this, Tim, my first thought was, wait a second. We've had tanking be an acute issue in baseball for a decade. The Astros did it. The Cubs did it. Most recently, the Orioles have done it. Oakland's doing it this year. No special committees there. You get two owners who say, you know what? I want to win, and I spend, they spend more money than other teams are comfortable with. we got to have a special committee. What do you think? Well, I was a little confused by that also, Buster. Look, Steve Cohen is in a different category. The Padres are in a different category, and I – just worry that we, we yell at teams for not spending enough money. I'm just not sure it's fair to yell at teams for spending too much money. You can't have it both ways. So I'm not sure what a special committee can do to rectify the enormous issue of payroll disparity in the major leagues. I mean, we have, it's so far apart the big the big clubs and the small clubs and no committee is going to solve that and to complain about steve cohen or check out what he's doing and to complain that the potteries are spending too much money i just don't think we're going anywhere with it by the way and it's a year into the new labor agreement yeah. right and the mets uh, steve cohen has basically indicated okay i'll pay the taxes i had one official say to me yesterday maybe the other owner should say thank you when they cash his check 
rather than complain about them, right? That's the right. system that was designed and negotiated by the owners. And a year into it, some of them are complaining. It's kind of crazy. And Tim, you and I know this. Spending a ton of money doesn't guarantee championship. Yeah. Doesn't guarantee a championship. Totally agree. And that's why got to be careful with these committees. You wonder, like you said, Buster, where was this committee five years ago or even 10 years ago? Maybe it's a little too late. We'll see. All right. Last one. Uh, our friend Tim McCarver passed away last week, 81 years old. They asked me to do some uh, some Sports Center, uh, you know, conversation about him. And where I landed was guy played in the big leagues in four different decades, 21 years as a catcher. And yet maybe his greatest impact was the best baseball analyst that we've ever seen. What do you think? Well, I think he's one of the greatest baseball analysts of all time. I think he is the best baseball player ever to be named a Hall of Fame broadcaster. I mean, some really good players with good careers. Tony Kubek, Ken Harrelson became Hall of Fame broadcasters. But I don't think anybody was better at both of those than Tim McCarver. And I, I found him fascinating all those years. It was a delight to be around. And he was a really good player, Buster. You know, you talk about the four decades. He led the major leagues in triples one season in 1966. A catcher led the league in triples. He's the only catcher ever to steal home in a World Series game. Go look at the 64 World Series, what Tim McCarver did to help the Cardinals win that World Series. And if I personalize this, when I was a little kid, this was like the coolest thing ever for me. I would play APBA, stupid dice baseball game, clueless kid with nothing to do with his life except for play baseball. They come in and play APBA. And Tim McCarver, I used to love to hit him lead off in those games because he used to hit lead off occasionally in the late 60s and the 70s, and I always thought that was the coolest thing ever, a catcher hitting leadoff. So good. He was such a good man and a great, great broadcaster. Yeah, I asked Aaron Boone the other day, and, of course, because Booney uh, has sat in the seat of being an analyst on Sunday Night Baseball, asked him what he thinks separated Tim as an analyst, and he talked about uh, his ability to tell stories, and he talked about how you felt comfortable with him in part because that great Tennessee draw, you know, that right. West Tennessee draw that he had. And uh, Booney, of course, met him when he was little and he could re recite word by word, but Carver's call at the end of the 1980 world series. Uh, he, he was tremendous and, and he will be greatly missed. All right, Tim, thanks for doing this. Congratulations, grandpa. <laughs> grandpa two, grandpa three coming up here. Thank you, Buster. That was, that was very nice. I appreciate it. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. 
For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. The New York Mets. The Mets won 101 games last year, and yet their fan base went into the winter hungry for so much more because of how it ended. The Braves came back from 10 and a half games behind to win the National League East at the wire. And then the Mets were eliminated in the first round of the playoffs. Steve Cohen, the richest owner in baseball, pushed piles of money into an attempted upgrade. Newcomers. The two highest-paid pitchers in Major League Baseball history in annual salary are now both with the Mets. Cohen added Justin Verlander to Max Scherzer, each making $43.3 million. They also signed Kodai Senga and Jose Quintana, as well as relievers David Robertson and Brooks Raley, catcher Omar Narvaez and outfielder Tommy Pham, and they spent $162 million to retain Brandon Nimmo. Gone, but not forgotten. The Mets dumped catcher James McCann and saw pitchers Taiwan Walker and Trevor May walk away as free agents. Fault lines. The Mets' biggest effort to upgrade the offense fell through when Carlos Correa flunked the team's physical exam and his $315 million deal fell apart. Once again then, Buck Walter will field a lineup with depth but much less power than that of the Braves or the Phillies. Atlanta finished second in home runs last year. Philadelphia sixth among 30 teams. The Mets were 15th. The X Factor. Senga threw 1,340 and two-thirds innings in Japan, posting a 2-4-2 ERA over 11 seasons. But some major league teams passed on him because of concerns that he won't hold up physically. The Mets went the other way, investing a $75 million five-year deal in the 30-year-old right-hander to be a compliment to Verlander, Scherzer, Carrasco, and Quintana. Breakout star. Francisco Alvarez is regarded as one of baseball's best prospects, and he could ascend into the Mets lineup quickly if he pummels pitching in spring training or early in the AAA season. Alvarez is a big-time masher. As Showalter has said, he's the only player he's noticed with prominent muscles in his toes. Another to watch? Brett Beatty, who may inevitably get the opportunity to show whether he can be good enough on defense to play third in the majors. The Baseball Tonight Podcast win projection. Pakota projects the Mets at 97.2. Hembo has them at 95. I've got them at 98. Sarah Lang says 95. If there's one Major League Baseball prospect you have to keep your eye on this year, it's Corbin Carroll. Now, I know that would mean having to watch some Arizona Diamondbacks games, and that's not the most entertaining thing to do, but this kid is going to put on a show on a nightly basis. The 22-year-old center fielder rose through the minor leagues like it was nothing, and I, for one, know it's something. At 5'10 and only 165 pounds, Carroll has got the juice. I'm talking super advanced approach, smoking balls all over the field, and homeboy absolutely flies around the bases and covers a stupid amount of ground in the outfield. He was drafted in 2019 and actually missed the 2020 season due to the pandemic and then missed all of 2021 with a dislocated shoulder. To think that he missed as much time as he did and to still perform at the level he did last year is impressive. He bypassed the lower levels going straight to double A while hitting for power and average and displaying crazy speed between the, that level and triple A. I mean, it speaks to both his unique athleticism and his incredible feel for the game. 
check the numbers, check the highlights, and you won't believe he's just now getting his career started. Don't blink when watching Corbin Carroll because he might be the truth. That's right. Xavier Scruggs, Corbin, is very excited about you. You can hear that in his voice. Uh, and he point first off, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, so he pointed out something, that, you know, and, and in digging into this and, and preparing to talk to you, yeah, 2020, of course, you had the pandemic. In 2021, you played in just a handful of games. And what you did during that time was remarkable in terms of making that time productive for you. If you can just sort of, because that clearly now, when you look at your career, was a pivotal time for you. Yeah, and we might have to get Xavier on board with uh, the Diamondbacks, it sounds like, but we'll do our <laughs> best. But no, I mean, you know, I, I think it, you know, says something about me and the way that I went about it um, that time, but just as much, you know, how much the Diamondbacks did to, uh, to take care of us and, um, you know, was lucky enough to go play some games at their alternate site, um, get a good amount of at-bats under my, uh, my belt then. Went to Instructs as well, got some more at-bats, and, um, you know, just, just having that time every day, you know, we were with Johnny Gomes, um, was our outfield and base running coordinator, and instead of being out an affiliate, um, you know, we, we had our coordinator with us there every single day. And so I, I think just starting then, um, you know, Diamondbacks have always been very focused on, on those parts of the game, but being able to, to, to work through those at a high level with, with someone like that every day who has done it at the big league level, um, that, was, that was pretty special. And it, I, I read a story, I think it was, uh, it was a terrific story done by Steve Gilbert uh, about how when this all went down, you drew up a list, basically. You, I mean, you attacked it like what, uh, what you wanted to do, what you could do to make yourself better during this time, yes? Yes, so that was, that was more, um, you know, what I was talking about was more 2020. Um, and then, yeah, 2021, you know, dealt with, um, you know, playing seven games and, and being told that I, I wouldn't have a rest of the season. So, yeah, I mean, I think they always, they, you always talk about, right, how the only one who controls your career is you and not being able to get those game reps. I just, I still didn't want to lose that, that feeling of control and an ability to improve myself. And so just, just dove deep into some of the stuff um, that I could do away from the field, right. With the, with, with health and, and diet and sleep, um, with with pitch tracking and, and, and eye training, um, with with watching major league games, um, you know we've got the great benefit of having our spring training and our, our rehab be in the same city as our major league ball club, and so being able to go over there every night um, and, and learn the game with some of our uh, you know baseball minds over here that was that was special. Yeah, walk me through that if you can, uh, because you weren't able to play, uh, you attend a lot of Diamondbacks games. And you sat in the stands. And in fact, someone I covered back in the early 90s, Jeff Gardner, I've heard that uh, I read that you uh, sat next to. And what were you looking for and what sort of questions were you posing to him? Sure. So, you know, Jeff Gardner, or Gardy, as we call him, um, he's been awesome. And, you know, our our relationship hasn't just stopped with those games. Um, You know, he he was with us in some of the higher levels of the minor leagues last year, um, traveling around and visiting us. Um, you know, off-season work, we've, we've worked on some, some stuff as well that I'll keep under wraps, but, um, you know, he's, he's been, he's been someone who's been truly instrumental in, uh, in just helping me accomplish, um, you know, all these goals that I have. And, 
yeah, so, so sitting with those games with him, you know, he, he had the advantage of at the time he was um, doing some advancing and he was with our major league hitters um, every day before the game and then would come sit up in the stands and, and scout the game and, and sit with me. Um, and so just have, having that inside look of like, hey, these are how our hitters are prepared. Um, this is the information that they were given. This is what they chose to do with that information. And then seeing how that played out as well as some of the finer details of, of, of base running, of, of defense. You know, I, I think just having a guy like that who, who played, who managed, who scouted, um, you know, just I couldn't think of a better person to learn from. So working off of last season, you have a, you know, a nice uh, a series of games in your debut season. Uh, what was your takeaway going into the offseason, and what were you focused on coming into this year? Yeah, I mean, so I, I dove in, um, you know, I, I looked at all the numbers and I know what the numbers say. Um, and then made my adjustments from there of, you know, what I think would best put my best foot forth um, going into this year. And, you know, just was really grateful for that opportunity last year to, to be able to to have that time to be able to collect that that small sample and take that in the offseason and make those changes as opposed to kind of just going into this year and, and be a little bit more unsure of what I'm getting myself into. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that, that was my process there. Um, you know, maybe implemented a few new little things this off season, um, technique wise, um, situation wise that, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping are, are paying off in terms of, in terms of wins this year. What was a moment uh, that you had last year, something that stuck out at you where you were playing in a game, maybe you were facing a player, uh, you were facing a pitcher, you were you know, standing at first base next to someone on another team, you're like, wow, big leagues. Good question. I think, I think seeing Harper... In, in that first series, I think that was definitely a moment there. I think, um, you know, Mookie Betts, Christian Yelich, just just some of these guys you, you grow up watching um, and, you know, remember in, in middle school looking through YouTubes of their swings and, and stuff like that and try to incorporate a little something here, a little something there. I think in the moment, I tried to maybe stay away from that a little bit, but but after the season, looking back, being like, that was, that was, that was pretty cool. Did you get a chance to talk to any of those guys or did you kind of keep your distance uh, first time through here? Yeah. I mean, I just was probably as, as self-focused as I could be, you know, not in some senses in, in a selfish way. Right. Because I wanted to do everything that I could do to, to be ready to go and, and, and help the team win. And so I think that I kind of just stayed to myself and tried to be a fly, tried to absorb as much as I can. And that was more my mentality there. So, so yeah, not too many conversations there, maybe a first baseman here or there. Um, you know, I think Freddie Freeman's one that stands out as like as someone, but yeah. So when I was preparing for this, I was reaching out to folks with the Diamondbacks front office and I said, 
tell me something about Corbin that maybe people wouldn't know. And you demonstrated that a couple of times in this interview. They they talked about how thoughtful you are, that you'll, you'll pause a beat or two before giving an answer. I'm curious about sort of where the genesis of that is. Yeah, I mean, I just, I'd say in some senses, I don't, I just want to think through what I'm saying, right? I don't want to just throw out a generic answer. I want, I want to be thoughtful with what I say. Um, you know, I think having any sort of a platform um, where you're able to impact people, I just, I think it's so important to not take that for granted and not go through the motions there. And, and, you know, it, it kind of goes back to, to my big, um, my big goal in life, right? Is I, I want to impact as many people positively as I can. And I think that, you know, obviously can be done on the field and, and baseball has been my path there, but the off the field as well. And just whether it's sharing the way you think, um, some charity stuff there, something just, I think there's all sorts of ways to do that. I just, I try not to take that for granted. By the way, someone else who answers questions exactly like you do is Aaron Judge, who I think does a great job with that. You know, he'll think through those answers. You talked about the one, the wanting to impact people's lives what are some forms that that's uh, that's taken so far early in your career? Yeah, I mean, even you mentioned it right before we hopped on here, right? How uh, how twenty twenty and, and even into twenty twenty one, that really changed some of those things and became a little bit more online, a little bit less maybe uh, maybe less personal. Um, so stepping away from that, I mean, that that's my favorite part of it, right? Is is, is being there in person you know, playing around with, with the little kids playing, you know, whatever it is, it's soccer, football. Um, you know, th- those are some of my favorite things. And, and some of my favorite times um, is it, just, you know, I, I, with the goal of, of being a spark, right. Of like kind of igniting a fire in them of like, Hey, this is really fun. You know, I got to do this with these guys. Um, and maybe that takes them somewhere. Something else you've done, you dove into your education is what I got back that, you know, you and the person I, I spoke to today said, I don't know if he's actually finished his degree, but I know he's real close if he hasn't finished. You, you, I mean, do you use this time to to get your degree at Arizona State? Yeah, um, I went into it with a little bit of a different perspective, probably than most people. I, I didn't necessarily go into um, it with the, the goal of, of graduating, actually. It, it was more just... Um, more with the goal of learning, right? Like I had all this time during, during 2020 when we were shut down. Um, I had it when I was injured. Um, so I, I just wanted to, to make sure that I, I was using that time of, again, not going through the motions, not just sitting there scrolling on my phone. I, I wanted to do something and, and, and that was a good way to, uh, you know, just kind of take some time away from the rehab, um, take some, some time away from, from, from baseball um, and, and be able to, to just pursue something different for, you know, an hour or two a day. Where does that all come from? Uh, because it's pretty clear that you, you have an intellectual curiosity, you know, and the stories I'm hearing about you and baseball, uh, you know, sitting sex, sitting next to Guardy, taking these classes. Where do you think that comes from? I, I got super lucky um, growing up with my parents, right? Like they, um, you know, can never say enough good things about them and, and what they've done for me, what they've sacrificed for me. Um, but I, I think it really comes from them, right? Like the way I think my, my mom would describe it is that 
she didn't want me to just excel in school. She wanted to to create a uh, a lifelong learner, and you know that that's kind of her her wording there is just a, a lifelong learner. Um, and so just just growing up, fortunate enough to have you know a family that thought that way, I think um, it made it, it made it a lot easier. Last one for you. After you made your debut, there's this great picture of you giving your jersey to your mom. Uh, if you can describe that moment for for you, yeah, that was that was special. I uh, I, I couldn't wait to get out there after you know they, they said I could uh, I could have the jersey, and uh, so immediately it was just like all right, you know, I'm I'm giving this one to mom. I think uh, the dad dad got the ball and uh, mom got the jersey, so that was you know an, an incredible moment for me. Corbin, it was great to meet you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing this week? I am doing great, Buster, because we are on Zoom, and I am looking at you sitting in the ballpark while we talk, and nothing makes me happier than that. So I'm doing <laughs> great. Yeah, beautiful day here in Port St. Lucie. So we're going to play, uh, we have a bit of a quiz. And folks who have listened Uh-oh. to the beginning of the podcast know the answer. On Sunday, uh, I interviewed Dusty Baker for Sunday night uh, for uh, Sports Center, And I mentioned to him before we got going, hey, every manager I talk to say the coolest thing about winning the World Series is you get to hear from friends, from colleagues, well, congratulations for winning the World Series. And I said, who are some of the people you heard from? And he gave me three Really interesting names right off the top. What would, who would you guess Dusty heard from the first three names he mentioned after they won the World Series? Three names. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's Dusty. It could literally be anybody. There could be someone out there on the International Space Station right now, and somehow they would have found a way to text them. I am going to go way out there. I'm going to say maybe Barack Obama. Um, and then let's see. I mean, oh, my gosh. I I can't think outlandish enough. I keep thinking of baseball people, but I feel like it has to be cooler than that. And we have established that I know nothing other than baseball. So I, I don't even know. I okay. really don't. All right, Taylor, go ahead. Play Dusty's answer, the three names. Some of the first guys I heard from was like, uh, uh, you know, Sandy Koufax, you know, uh, Barack Obama, uh, Snoop Dogg. Yes. You got one, Sarah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I'm very proud of that. Snoop Dogg, Barack Obama, and uh, Sandy Koufax have never been mentioned in the same sentence until Dusty Baker, and that is why he is the absolute greatest. That is amazing. Oh, my gosh. Great minds think alike. That's exactly what I said to Tim Tim (laughs) Kirchner. We we played it for him. All right, Sarah, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is two. So uh, Phil Nevin announced the other day he the first manager to announce his opening day starter 
2023, and he announced that for the second straight year, Shohei Otani will be pitching on opening day for the Angels. So we know the Angels pitching has been a bit unreliable and uh, not consistent over the last few years. Otani will be the first Angels pitcher to start consecutive opening days since Jared Weaver in uh, 2010-15. He started six straight. And I found this stat I have back on opening day last year. So Otani hit leadoff, as we know he often does. He became, last year, the first player to both throw his team's first pitch of the season and face his team's first pitch of the season as a hitter. So it would be pretty cool if he did that again. Number two. Number two is one. So I I know I've talked a lot about Juan Soto this offseason. I'm expecting a huge year from him really getting into its own in San Diego. So the number one is for his projections. He is projected for 7.1 war, according to Seymour, and a 171 way to run created plus. Those are both the highest projections for any hitter, according to Seymour. So I dug into this bit because, of course, you know, Aaron Judge just had 62 home runs. We have some other really good hitters. This guy just had a quote-unquote down year. So why are people numbers saying that Soto will indeed lead the majors? And what I found was that he had the 12th lowest BABIP in the majors last year, which means that in addition to a lot else, there was some bad luck going on there. But overall, he had his lowest hard hit rate since his rookie year and his lowest sweet spot rate, which is the ideal launch ankle contact in his career. Those are very fixable for a guy who knows how to hit. So that's why I'm expecting a big year from him. Number one. Number one is 40. So it is well established on this podcast that I am a big fan of birthdays. And today is Justin Berlander's 40th birthday. So last year, he had a 1.75 ERA, which was already the oldest that any player had been having an ERA that low in his age 39 season. So we look ahead and we say, what is the lowest ERA for a pitcher in his age 40 season or older? in a qualified season. And it was a 1.87 ERA for Roger Clemens in 2005 in his age 42 season. So we'll see what Verlander has under his belt for his age 40 season, but we love a birthday on this podcast. All right. I'm going to see Justin in a little while, and I'll wish him a happy birthday for you, Sarah. I'm sure he remembers because he was on the dais with you at the baseball writers dinner uh, that uh, was a few weeks ago. I, I, you know, had a conversation with Dusty Baker yesterday about Verlander and he talked about how Justin has this ability to pitch through trouble. And I don't think anybody thinks that uh, Justin's stuff is as great as it was say a decade ago, but boy, I, I mean, there were just moments when it felt like he could figure out how to get through tough situations. What'd you see in him last year? 
Absolutely. I mean, this is the picture who's really evolved. You know, you mentioned this stuff, and I think there are fans out there who forget that in the late 2000s, this was the guy who was lighting up the velocity leaderboard. I mean, when you go back to the early days of pitch tracking that we have in 2008 and 2009, you look at guys with 100-mile-an-hour strikeouts. Justin Verlander is one of the main names there. Now, when you look at the way he pitches, you wouldn't even think of that. So you have to be able to evolve in order to set a record for the oldest guy to have an ERA that low. And you have to be able to evolve to be getting contracts like this when you're returning for the in-spring training. So he has absolutely done that. And I think that that bodes really well. And again, you know, a lot has been made about his uh, relationship with Max Scherzer and all of that. But I think if anything, Max is going to learn even more from him this year. Yeah, he's 56 way, fifty six wins away from 300. I had guys mm-hmm. in the Astros uh, camp telling me they think he's going to get there. Just the, the way his mind works, the way, you know, how competitive he is, it's uh, something he's focusing on. All right, Sarah, thanks for doing this. Good to see you. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. Cleveland Guardians. The Guardians were the big league's youngest team last year and yet won 92 games in the American League Central comfortably by 11 games. Jose Ramirez finished fourth in the AL MVP voting. Stephen Kwan was third in the Rookie of the Year voting. Four Guardians won Gold Glove Awards. And Terry Francona won the American League Manager of the Year Award. Newcomers. Cleveland signed first baseman Josh Bell to a two-year, $33 million deal, trying to boost the team's power. The Guardians ranked 29th among the 30 teams in home runs last year. Cleveland also signed catcher Mike Zanino for $6 million, and like Bell, Zanino should augment the team's slugging potential. Gone, but not forgotten. Catcher Austin Hedges departed to sign with Pittsburgh. Fault lines. It seems a given every year that the Guardians will pitch well and play good defense. It seems a given every year that run production will be something of a challenge. Even in a season in which Cleveland ran away with its division, the Guardians ranked 15th in run scored and 21st in slugging percentage. The Guardians need Jose Ramirez to stay healthy and for Bell to take advantage of when Quan, Ahmed Rosario, and Ramirez get on base. Breakout star. Oscar Gonzalez had the biggest moment of 2022 for Cleveland when his 15th inning home run off Corey Kluber clinched the division series against Tampa Bay. And this was after a strong debut regular season, batting 296 with an adjusted OPS plus of 125. Cleveland has been desperate for some of its young outfielders to establish themselves. And like Juan, Gonzalez will get a chance to follow up on his strong debut season. The Baseball Tonight Podcast win projection. Paul Embikidi says 85 wins. Sarah Langs, 88. Pakoda projects 87.8. I've got Cleveland for 90 wins. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Monday. Adam Yaney writes, and how many teams would you say have a realistic shot at winning the World Series this year? I see eight. Uh, I think it's more than that. I think 12. In the last two years, we had the Braves went into the playoffs in 2021 with the worst record, I believe, among the all the teams that qualified. 
and they won the World Series. And last year, the Phillies uh, made it to the to the World Series after winning 87 games. I think if, we, if you get into the postseason, you got a shot. Mm-hmm. Brian Roll up next. If the bigger bases are really for safety, why doesn't baseball adopt the safety based at first like softball has? First is the most likely for bad collisions, and it would make the running lane finally make sense. Brian, I agree with you. I also think people in baseball think it looks weird. <laughs> Aesthetics are important, I guess. Uh, Kevin, yes, exactly. Kevin Sweezy writes in, what are the best spring training facilities in the Cactus League? Also, what teams are you most excited to see this year in the Cactus League? I've always thought of the Diamondbacks spring training facilities being great. Uh, I, I remember when Peoria opened up, they've got the Mariners and the Padres. Uh, I thought that was terrific. I haven't been there since they've done some renovation. The teams I'm looking forward to seeing the most in the Cactus League Rangers and White Sox, because we have them on air that first weekend. Don Irvine writes in, do players who sign mega contracts ever feel guilty if they underperform or flame out, or do they figure the teams can afford it and it's just part of the risk the owners take? Do you think Steven Strasburg feels bad about all the money he's taking from the Washington Nationals? I don't think so. <laughs> well, I think most players don't. I think their perspective is that, uh, you know, as you know, Don, you pointed out that, uh, you know, that owners sign these contracts knowing the risk. Um, but I will say there's some players who don't feel comfortable taking the money. Maybe the best example of that was Mark McGuire when he retired with a year left on his deal. There have been other players who walked away from money also. I think Michael Kadire had some money on the table when he announced his retirement. He just didn't feel good about taking it while not being a productive player. Fair enough. Matthew Porto writes in DeGrom has made it clear that he is self-consciously working for the Hall of Fame. Is it possible the pitcher-friendly ballpark in Texas attracted him to help pad his late career numbers? No. I think the reason why I went to the Rangers was because they offered significantly more than any other team, like $70 million, $80 million more than any other team. Um, and we talked about it on the podcast last year. They're, they were definitely feeling within the Mets organization that he was just not comfortable being in New York, and then he preferred to be someplace else, and that's what he got with this massive contract. Michael Preston writes in, why would Machado announce his intent to opt out now, try to negotiate extension for more money, hope to get traded, or just doesn't like where the Padres are headed and wants to send a message? No, I think he likes where the Padres are headed. He talked about that. He respects that. I just think this is normal part of negotiation. Like, I, you know, in hearing his explanation about it the other day, I didn't sense, like, any anger in the way that we heard from Corbin Burns toward the Brewers. I thought Machado was just like, okay, I got to answer this question. I don't want to answer this question every day. So I'm just going to say I'm going to opt out. And it wouldn't at all surprise me uh, if there's negotiations going on behind the scenes during the spring training. He wants more money. Pretty simple. Tricky Henderson. That's okay. Yeah. You can understand that. Of course. Uh, Tricky Henderson writes, and why do you think Pocota captures the imagination of baseball fans so strongly? Neither NBA nor NFL has a projection generating such excitement. However popular Pocota gets as the song goes, Pocota, they don't really know ya. <laughs> yeah, I heard a bunch of Mets players singing that earlier today. No, uh, <laughs> I, I think, I mean, let's face it. No sports fan base cares about numbers more than baseball's fan base. You know, I think that's <laughs> yeah. why there was such an uproar. Uh, about the steroid era and the players and what they were doing is because people care more about the numbers and the numbers were infiltrated for lack of a better way to describe it. 
Last one for today, a touchy one here. Sarah Gillespie at Atypical Faith writes and might not qualify as a bleacher tweet, but can we please stop calling Taylor the Reverend from a real minister who loves baseball? And I have to say, I do empathize a little bit with Sarah because everyone and their mother calls themselves a podcaster. And, uh, you know, maybe until like, you know, the Bachelor celebrities or like D-list Bravo stars stop calling themselves podcasters. Maybe, you know, we can stop calling me the Reverend, but... Um, you know, I, I feel for you, Sarah. What do you think, Buster? I, I kind of feel like, yeah, I hear the point. And are you literally the re- a reverend? No, but you <laughs> did not. marry two, two, two couples. Yes. Yeah. You, you married two couples. So you qualified for that. I've got credentials. Degree, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can put it on my resume. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe we, Sarah should decide. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, should we call you the ordained minister instead? It doesn't have like the same flow, but isn't that technically what it is? Yes. But uh, it doesn't roll off the tongue like the Rev. No, the (laughs) Rev. I like the Rev. (laughs) All right. We'll keep it. We'll, we'll keep the Rev, but Sarah Gillespie, if you have some issues, you know, feel free to write us in hashtag bleacher tweets. The bleacher tweeters brought it this week between the questions for Joe for the bleacher tweet segment. We really appreciate it. We'll be back tomorrow. So keep sending them in. That's it for today. My thanks to Joe Martinez, Corbin Carroll, Sarah, Tim, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.